0: All right, in this video, we're going to continue our walk survey through the New Testament by looking at two more of Paul's letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Uh, now, 1st Thessalonians is actually considered to be probably the oldest document in the New Testament. We think it was probably written uh, in the early 50s, so very, very early on in Paul's ministry. Uh, we know quite a bit about the church situation in Thessalonica, because it's actually described in the book of Acts. So if you go to Acts chapter 17, you can read kind of what's going on. And there we see that Paul went to the city of Thessalonica and he preached the gospel of these people and many were persuaded. So he was very effective. But many of the Jews, because remember, this is only maybe 15 years or so since Jesus, so still a lot of tension. Many of the Jewish people not only rejected the message, but were so angry that they started a riot in the city and stormed the house that Paul and Silas were staying in, brought them up on charges. And if you remember the story from Acts, Paul actually escapes in the middle of the night. So it's a big deal. Uh, this meant Paul had to leave the young church. So you know, a, bu- a bunch of people accept Jesus, new thing, crazy. And then the guy that teaches them is suddenly gone because he had to run away. And you have a lot of people left with questions like well, who's gonna teach us? Who's gonna show us what's true? And he was never able to come back and help them, as he talks about in chapter two of his first letter, talking about Satan blocking his way. So what he does is he sends someone named Timothy, this young protege that he'd been training, to go back um, and, uh, you know, just check up on them, see how they're doing, like we've seen in other letters, and to help them grow, to almost kind of pastor and teach them a little bit. So Timothy goes and then returns back to Paul and tells him what's going on, tells him it's going well, tells him what's struggling with, uh, and to Paul's great relief as he gets this first letter, it sounds like the church is doing well. Even though he had to kind of run away in the middle of the night, it sounds like the people that were converted uh, are actually staying strong and following him. So uh, it does report that There's still a lot of persecution though, especially probably from the Jewish people who are really trying to stamp out this thing they think is a heresy, this new Christian uh, sect of Judaism. Um, And though, although they're doing well, he recognized that they're really suffering for it. Uh, There's also a few small issues that he wants to address, mainly dealing with like sexual immorality. And some questions about what's next, and death, and the resurrection, and Christ's return. So, first and second Thessalonians are often looked at as letters that deal with some of these topics. So, uh, we're just going to take a little walkthrough of the books, starting in chapter one of First Thessalonians. Paul begins with a greeting and a thanksgiving. He's—you uh, just imagine being Paul. You you, you, you preach to these people, you see them all get excited, except, and then you got to run away in the middle of the night for to save your own life. And he's probably worried. He's probably concerned about them. Man, how are they doing? Did they did they all just walk away from it after I left? You know, I've heard that the Jewish people that are trying to kill me have probably really come against him. What's it like to be them? And he gets a message that they're actually doing really well. And so the entire first chapter is his just thankfulness, is like gratitude that uh, they're standing strong. And then you get to chapter two, and if you're following on your Bible, what you realize is Paul now has to defend himself. Now we saw some of Paul defending himself in the book of Corinthians. And it's a slightly different situation, although it's kind of a common theme that Paul has to defend himself. In Corinthians, he was really calling the Corinthians to the carpet for some of their behavior, and they didn't wanna listen. So they're like, you're not even a real apostle, we don't care what to say. Here in in Thessalonica, which is actually earlier than, so this was written before, what you probably had was a lot of Jewish people who maybe they even knew Paul when he was still a faithful Jewish man and hadn't converted to Christianity. Uh, they are essentially making accusations that this Paul guy is a charlatan, um, that he's leading them astray, that he's a heretic, don't listen to him, all these kind of things. And again, this would make sense because uh, many Christians were kind of, who is this guy? But there's also another side of it, which is Paul caused a lot of trouble. <laughs> there's a whole riot. And so you also have people saying, oh, that Paul, he's a troublemaker. Don't, you know, ignore him. And my assumption, this is an assumption, there's probably a lot of Christians suffering in Thessalonica, really struggling because of stuff Paul did. So Paul has to write and, and defend himself and say, I know I know, I'm, it might have caused some trouble when I was there, but trust me, what I said was true. Uh, I know I was running out of town in the middle of the night, but that doesn't make me untrue. Uh, and I know my Jewish adversaries are trying to discount me. Don't listen to him. Um, and one of his primary arguments is, just remember, when I came to you, I didn't ask for anything, right? I didn't ask for money. I, I didn't I didn't ask for fame or anything. So these accusations that I'm just some charlatan riding into town trying to get rich, I didn't ask for anything. So my only motivation for coming to you was that I cared about you. And that's the way he defends himself. Uh, so following that, he continues to be grateful for them, thanking for them, um, He recounts again how they've suffered and stood strong, which is, again, it's a big deal. He's writing to people who he knew in his head were really having a difficult time of it, and he couldn't be with them. Uh, Can you imagine how difficult that would be, right? You're like, in some ways, these people would almost feel like spiritual children to Paul, that he had to sneak away in the middle of the night and kind of abandon a little bit. And now he's like, man, I'm just so grateful that you guys are standing strong. Uh, and he talks about, yeah, I wanted to go. I wanted to come back. I couldn't. So I sent Timothy. I hope he strengthens you. Just know that I care about you. Things like that. After all of that, after encouraging him to stand strong and things, you he, he then get to chapter four of 1 Timothy. And at this point, Paul wants to say, okay, all that being said, there are a couple things I want to talk to you about. Okay, guys, um, just kind of as a father to my spiritual children, you might say there's two things I want to address, and so he does that in chapter four, and both of them I think are still relevant for the church today, and they're important things we can talk about. The first issue he deals with, the first challenge, is sexual purity. Uh, apparently, they had an inability to control their sexual behavior, and this is a big deal for Paul. Uh, and as you read his remarks on sexual immorality, as he talks about it in First Thessalonians, it's important to consider one, one basic idea. And put yourself, oh, when you're reading the Bible, try to put yourself in their world. When you and I, even maybe some of you watching this are recent converts, newer Christians, my guess is if you're getting your master's degree at, at a seminary, you've probably been doing this for a while. Comments about sexual morality aren't Blowing anyone's mind, and it says, "What? I'm not supposed to do that." We know, right? Even in a, even people that aren't Christians, kind of have a sense of morality that's ingrained in our culture. People, Gentile converts in this city of Thessalonica, had no concept, had no background, had no their whole lives. However, no one had ever told them, "You can't behave this way sexually. You have to behave this way sexually." When the Jewish people uh, took on Christ as king and adapted their lives to Christ's teaching, the change in what we would call sexual ethic wasn't huge. It wasn't like, you want me to do what? Right? Jewish people already believed because of the Torah and the Leviticus that there were very clear expectations for how to behave sexually. Gentile pagans, man, not at all. Do whatever you want, right? Same sex, different sex, prostitution, multiple partners, didn't matter. It was It was a free for all. So to convert to Christianity and accept Christ as Lord, it wasn't just like, we don't want to do this. It was more like, wait, what what are the expectations? Because again, Paul didn't have much time with these people. He kind of preached and ran. Uh, So Paul writes to change their thinking and instill a new way of thinking. First Thessalonians is one of the first letters that we see that Paul has to say, hey, here's the expectation. If you're going to be part of this Christian community, just like the Jews, we're, we're coming out of Judaism. There's a certain way that you have to behave sexually, uh, a new way of thinking. And he's clear that God expects you to be holy in your sex life, in the way that you behave in that way. Despite what your culture is telling you, despite how you grew up and what paganism says, that's not what it means to be a Christian. And so Paul is, it's not so much like a, a fighting words as we saw in Corinthians where he's like, come on guys, stop it. It's more like instruction, like, hey, I know this is new to you, but this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus and start to live his new humanity. So that's the first issue. The second issue is also interesting. You kind of unpack it. We see in the book of Acts, chapter two, that when the new church formed, it says they sold all their possessions and uh, shared, and no one was right there. It was it was actually the first sort of sign of socialism. I've I've been asked if Jesus was a communist. I'm like, well, you know, it's not communism, but there's some socialism going on in Acts chapter two. And this is now you know we're talking about maybe. 10 or 15 years, 10 years maybe. So a lot of that's still kind of happening. So this, this small little house church uh, in Thessalonica probably functioned similarly to how we saw the church function right there in the book of Acts in the beginning. And uh, that meant they probably did practice sharing and bringing their stuff together and sort of a communal sense, a little bit of what we might call socialism. Now, I'm not gonna veer this video off into the politics and stuff. Um, these were a group of people who were choosing to do this, or choosing whatever. But the, an issue comes up. And the issue is if we live this way and we share what we have, what if somebody doesn't wanna really contribute or work and just wants to kind of freeload and loaf? And Paul wants to speak into that because apparently it was happening. He said, hey, I, I hear along with some sexual stuff, I hear some of you guys are just trying to like freeload off each other and you're sharing stuff, but some of you aren't actually contributing. You're not working. And Paul wants to say that is not the way forward, and we'll come back to this again in his second letter. But Paul wants to say, uh, no, like if you're a part of this community, you have to contribute. You need to work, and you you didn't just take, take, take. You gotta. It's also about giving. So don't allow people who aren't willing to work uh, to just take stuff. So he kind of, it's almost like this balance, this tension, and. What ultimately it kind of leads to, and where Paul is basing this argument on, picks up in the middle of chapter 4, and it is kind of a big theme of both of these letters, which is the return of Christ. Again, early 50s, so we don't know exactly how old Jesus was. There's good guesses it's mid-late 30s, so anywhere between 10 or 15, 20 years at the most since Jesus has left. Many people we're still expecting him to show up, right? Because <laughs> when Jesus left, he didn't say, I'm gonna leave for a few thousand years. He's like, no, I'm gonna go, I'll be back. And so even after he left, it says in Acts that they were like looking up at the clouds, like, "Is he? when is he coming back? And an angel had to say, go about your business. And so the early church really wrestled with this question. When would he return? Um, and a question that was sort of asked in it is, well, what... It, What happens if I die before he comes back? Again, think about that thought, right? Because these are the people that were still alive. Now they're 10, 15 years later. And it's like, well, I was following Jesus when he was here, but we're waiting for him to return and establish his kingdom. What happens if we die? And so here Paul addresses this question of when would he come back? What would it look like? and what happens to those who die before he returns. And Paul wants to give us some clarity. He gives us some theological insight, which is helpful for us. He tells us a couple things. He says, the first is when Christ returns, the parousia, the the, the coming of the Lord, he says that the dead will actually rise first and be given these new physical bodies and meet him in the air and essentially welcome him back to earth and set up his kingdom. So, don't worry if you've died. In fact, Paul again, keep in mind, these are Gentile pagans. The Jewish people had a long history, especially the Pharisees knows of believing that they would be resurrected and be able to live in the new heaven and earth with the Messiah. The pagans had no idea. They're just like, "Well, what if we die?" He's like, "Here's here, this is this is the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. You will be resurrected." Um, that's the first thing. And now many people want to kind of go around in that, so um, are there two parousias? Is there a rapture? Is Jesus going to come and, and take the Christians away and then come back seven years later? Uh, a lot of debates about this. This is a survey class. You can get into that in your theology class. But this is the book of Thessalonians is often where that argument comes into play. Uh, the important thing Paul wants to say, though, is don't worry. Even if you died, you'll be resurrected and the dead and the living will be united again in new heaven and new earth. Um, And then the second thing he wants to basically say is, look, no one knows when he's coming. Uh, I imagine if you're Paul, who knows? Like, you know, we talk about Paul being inspired when he wrote the letters. Yeah, but he wasn't God. Paul might've been like, when are you coming back? (laughs) Like I've been waiting, Jesus, you coming soon? And now he's writing these letters and then he ends up in prison. And by the end, we'll see as you get into the next half of this, this, this lesson, when we get into his pastoral epistles at the end of his life, He's kind of resigned. Like, I'm probably gonna die in prison. I'm probably not gonna see the return of Christ. And you almost see kind of a shift in his priorities. Early on, his younger letters, he's very much like, don't worry about getting married. Don't worry about this. Just just preach the gospel and, and let's get excited about the return of Christ. And then it, maybe it sort of sinks into Paul after a while that I might not even, we, we need to realize what it means to actually live lives here on earth. It could be a while. So Paul, you almost kind of see a shift. But here in 1 Thessalonians, He's like, no one knows when he's coming back. We don't, he didn't tell us, we don't know. So live each day in the day. Um, Trust that it could be any time. He could come back in a moment, right? But he could also come back in a thousand years. So you need to live today and tomorrow, the next day, um, focusing on obeying Christ, on being the people he's created you to be, on experiencing the life he's calling you to, seeking holiness in your life and your sexual life and working hard and getting a job. It's very possible that some of these people were being lazy and not working because they're like, hey, he's coming back tomorrow anyway. Why don't you get a job? Uh, a little bit of just a side note. When I was younger, I remember it was probably maybe the late 80s. There was some guy who had just gotten on, you know, some big media kick about predicting that Christ was coming back. He gave us a date, and he, you know, I think it was like 1989 or something, and it was just a firestorm of people in these certain theological communities, like, he's coming back, he's coming up. And I remember hearing stories later when it didn't happen, obviously, that there were people who had like sold their houses and, you know, ran up credit card debt and just assumed that was it. So, and, and now they're stuck with the repercussions. And I imagine it was similar in the 50s of the early church, 19, the, you know, the 50s, 55, 60, 20 years after Jesus. Some people are like, he's probably come back any minute. I don't need a career. Imagine being a student, and, and you guys are students. Like, why go to college? Why write this paper? Christ is coming back tomorrow. This is stuff they're wrestling with. Okay, uh, let's move on then to Second Thessalonians.